Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming to church today. Uh, it's always a pleasure. You know, you think, well, what am I doing? Well, you're encouraging us by being here. That's what you're doing. And you're showing your love for Jesus, and you're showing your love for one another. So that's uh, always a blessing. It's always a blessing. So it's good to see everybody here today. Uh, today we're going to be going into Galatians. We're going to finish chapter 2 of Galatians. We're going to cover verses 11 through 21. Uh, let, me, let me start out, though, first. We, uh, we are all aware of the recent court decisions by uh, the Supreme Court, especially Roe v. Wade. And uh, yeah, praise God. Praise God. Uh, but you know what? We, there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, we support uh, our local crisis pregnancy center, as Pastor John was saying. We also have been working with Love Life out in Raleigh a couple times. Uh, we do plan to go out to Raleigh again in October for week 40. Out, uh, but uh, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of prayers to be uh, spoken before the Lord. You know, this is an answer to prayer, but it's not the, the final uh, thing that we would like to see. And the main reason for that, and I'll just leave you with this, is our courts and our judicial system still does not view a unborn child as a person. You know, you can say what all you want exterior to that, but until they settle that issue, uh, that's something to be praying for. Because the individual states and our communities are all going to be affected now more, actually uh, more so, depending on what our state decides to do whether our state decides to go the way of conservative or to go the other direction. So I just want to leave you with that. There's still a lot to be prayed for, and especially pray for our local crisis pregnancy center. Pray for our churches. We're here in the Bible Belt. We're not immune from vandalism. We're not immune from acts of violence and protest. We're not. Uh, we're, there's things in our society, in our culture, I could, <laughs> I'm going to change my sermon right now. No, just kidding. There are things in today's culture and society that we don't get to sit out. And we'll be talking about those. And you know, what I, you know what I'm talking about when it comes to the issue of abortion, when it comes to the issue of uh, children and uh, transsexuality and that whole movement that's going on that's just taken over our country, it seems, by a storm. So we don't get to sit these things out, folks. And we're not a political, this is not a political platform. We teach the Bible. But keep in mind, you know, participate in prayer. And, and ask the Lord how he would use you in our culture today. And, and mainly it's going to be through us bringing the gospel. Amen? Amen? All right. So last week we learned some really valuable lessons. You know, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, Paul recounts his trip to Jerusalem to the Galatian church. Remember, he's explaining to the church that he planted into Galatia that is being influenced by false teachers. He's explaining to them a previous event that took place when he was in Antioch, and he went between Antioch and Jerusalem earlier in his ministry. But one of the things we learned from last week, uh, key, three things we learned mainly, is that to defend the gospel, it requires wisdom. The truth of the gospel does survive because apostles, saints, servants, and believers, all great and small, far and wide, stood for the truth of the gospel, and they defended it. And the same holds true for us today. We also learn that it's important for unity among believers, not just unity for unity's sake, but for the law of love, which we referenced in Romans 14, 19. He said, therefore, let us pursue the things which make 
for peace and the things which one may edify one another. And that's what you're doing today. Your presence here today is edifying one another. And then also protection from spiritual bullies. Protection from spiritual bullies. How do you and I respond to those who approach us and may even come among us? And I'm not trying to point out any, thank you visitors today, I'm not trying to do that, okay? But those who would come among us and to teach us what we would call a Jesus plus salvation. You know, it's not just Jesus and the work on the cross that's sufficient enough for your salvation. No, you have to add some things to that. And so that's going to be the main theme throughout the entire letter. Our identity in Christ is so important, and Paul's going to nail it for us. And I hope to be able to teach it uh, by God's grace. So this week, Paul continues relating his past experiences at Antioch to the Galatians to illustrate the effects now of false teaching and hypocrisy and the need that we sometimes have to deal with things in a public matter. And, that's, and this is the case we're going to see today of Peter and his behavior among the Jewish Christians there. But he also begins to focus more on our identity in Christ, which is so important to us and so necessary that we understand that in light of the things we're going on, you know, the things that are happening in our culture. So let's read our passage. It's uh, uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 21. It says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Uh-oh. <laughs> because he was to be blamed. For certain men, before, certain men came from James. So before they came, excuse me, verse 12, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they showed up, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, fearing those Christian Jewish men that had come from Jerusalem. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Verse 17, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not, I do not, set aside the grace of God. For if by righteousness, or if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need to maybe slow down a little bit and just take, take in these words of Paul. Maybe it's time for us to, to go a little deeper in understanding of who we are because our understanding, our true identity in you will help us. It will strengthen us. 
It will help us to be able to defend the faith. It will help us to witness to those that we care for and love that we would like to see come into the kingdom. It will help us be strengthened when the storms come. And so, Lord, will you go deeper into our hearts and minds and for understanding this morning as only you can and only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please go before us, go before me as I speak these words. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 So here we have, I mean, you can just imagine the scene, a public rebuke from Paul to Peter in a church setting. He says here, verse 11, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, now Antioch is uh, located, uh, just so you know, it's about 16 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, west of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And at that time, it was in the, the land of Syria. Today, it's in modern days, it's in the very lower central part of Turkey, right on the border with Syria. It, uh, it was an important city. It ranked third after Rome and Alexandria in, in, in a point of importance during the Roman Empire. And it was also called uh, the first city of the East. Now, Christianity was introduced to Antioch very early. It became a home for missionaries. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it, bought, it bears the modern name, as I was saying, of Antikia. And interesting because we were just in the book of Daniel, uh, Antikia or Antioch. You remember this Antiochus and the Seleucid kings we were talking about through the book of Daniel near the end where the no kings of the north and the kings of the south. Well, uh, the founder of the city of Antiochus, or excuse me, Antioch, his name was Seleucius Nicator, and his father's name was Antioch. And so this kind of, I thought it was interesting that it sort of tied into a little bit of information, really, uh, from where we were in Daniel. And it's kind of ironic to see this city, which was once a pagan city, uh, be the hub at, at one point in time for such powerful missionaries as Paul and Barnabas. But it says here that when Peter came to Antioch, and this is the church that Paul and Barnabas were now ministering in, it says, I withstood him to his face. Now, to withstand is to resist or to oppose. Uh, now, keep in mind, you know, the good thing about this, there was going to be a public rebuke, but the good thing about this is that Paul didn't do it behind his back. You know, we live in a society where you know, the most time, the only time people get, to get on your, in your face is on your Facebook page, right? Or your, your social media. We're, we're afraid to confront one another oftentimes for various reasons. But we're okay with speaking about somebody behind their back, a problem we have with them. We're all guilty of that. But here we see Paul, he says, I withstood him to his face. Because he was to be blamed, he was to be charged. Well, what? You would say, what, did he, what was he charged with? He gets right to it, explaining this in verse 12. He says, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. In ancient culture, and in some respects in today, some of our cultures in today's world, to share a meal signifies fellowship, it signifies love, and it signifies acceptance. You generally wouldn't invite somebody into your home if you weren't wanting to express those things, despite what can happen uh, with relatives and holidays and all the kind of difficulty we have uh, at times. And oftentimes in the ancient culture, especially in the early church times, their meals would be coupled with a communion service as well. And so Peter's like, look, before these men came up from 
Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, why, do, why would he have to say, well, he would eat with the Gentiles? We have to understand, this is the early church, but Jewish culture, especially in that day, was very isolated from the rest of the world. You know, they would separate themselves because of their dietary laws that were in Leviticus 11, for instance. And so for a Jew to eat with a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, would make them ritually unclean. And so they wouldn't be able to bring their sacrifice to the temple until they became clean. So they would have to maintain a, not only separation, not only a kosher diet with no, no shellfish, no pork or anything. I, you know, I feel bad for them on that. But uh, they, they would have to follow this ritual. So when they got saved, when they became Christians, just like when you and I came to know the Lord, the things that we did in our culture didn't leave us. You know, we were still used to doing things a certain way. We may have even come out of a false religion. And so the Lord had to work and he had to do some things to, to help us come out of those, those habits, whether they were good or bad. Um, and if they were bad, the Lord will cleanse us and he will change us. But this is the early church, the very earliest part of the church. And so they're dealing with culture wars. Imagine that. <laughs> culture wars were going on. And you know, Peter, he should have known better you know, because what he was doing was separating himself and making himself look good in front of the Jews that came up, the men from James, the Christian Jews. He was saying, you know, all of a sudden now he sits at the other part of the room and he only sits with them and he doesn't have any kind of fellowship. And Peter should have known because he was instructed about this by the Lord himself. We see it in Acts 10, 9 through 16. I won't read the whole thing, um, but Peter, you know, just to summarize, he had, a, he had a prayer, he had a vision, and he saw this, this sheet bound by, at four corners, and it was descending down. In verse 12, it says that there were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, all coming down in this sheet in his vision. And a voice came to him, and it said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, <laughs> for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm not going to kill these, these unclean animals. But verse 15, it says, uh, and a voice spoke to him again a second time and said this, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. You've got you to change, Peter. I, you know, I've redeemed you, but you've got to change your ways to serve me. And so this was done three times, and then the object was taken up. So Peter had a, a, a divine revelation, a vision about not separating. The vision God was telling Peter was not to avoid fellowship with Gentiles based on those Levitical dietary laws that he was brought up with. And Peter was obliged to this, and he had regular mealtimes with the Gentile Christians at Antioch. I mean, he was in Antioch. You know, he, he had regular fellowship, but all of a sudden, uh, the bigwigs came up from Jerusalem, and he's like, oh, no, no, I don't act that way. <laughs> I don't eat any unclean. I, I separate myself. And so Paul's calling them out publicly. He says, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. Those of the circumcision, as your, your, uh, your translation reads. The Jewish Christians, they were, he was fearing what they thought of them. He had this fear of man, so he separated himself. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, when, when, when we have the fear of man, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. 
So when we think we got to please people and we want to try to look good in front of others, you know, because of our religiosity, we set, our, we set a trap for ourselves. And you might run into somebody like Paul, who's going to call you out about that. But more seriously, what Peter is doing is he's acting directly against the truth of the gospel. You know, Paul wasn't doing this for a show. He wasn't doing this so that he could, you know, show who was boss up there in Antioch. You know, one apostle against the other. Paul was defending the truth of the gospel. I would say he didn't have anything personal going against Peter. Peter is acting against the truth of the gospel, and he, and he knows it because of his firsthand experience we talked about in Acts 10. Uh, or we didn't talk about, sorry. In Acts 10, I'll remind you, there is a, an event when Peter was on the mission field. He went into the house of Cornelius, and in his own words, Peter described, or he declared several times, that God's mercy and is, or excuse me, was and is extended to all people, Jew and Gentile. So Peter was really playing the hypocrite here. He not only knew better about the food and Levitical law, but he also knew that the gospel was for everybody. It wasn't, it wasn't just for the Jews. Acts 10, 34 and 35, it says, this is what Peter, this was typical of the things he was saying before he had to put on this show. He would say, uh, he would open his mouth and say, in truth, I perceive that God shows no per partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So he's, you know, here's Peter saying one thing and then acting another way. And to make matters worse, he, he's acting against the truth of the gospel, but he's also carrying away. Look at verse uh, 13. It says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Peter's influence caused many of them to stumble. And it, he says, so even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You know, we, we may think we stand, and, and, and in a prideful sense, we may think we stand on our doctrine. We may think we stand on our truth and, and all the good things of God. But if we do it in the flesh, we can fall just as easy as Peter did. We need to examine our hearts and be humble before the Lord. But notice what leadership and the responsibility of leadership. And, you know, if you're a parent, if you're a father or a mother or a grandparent or uncle and aunt, it influences other people for the case of Christ, for the Lord. You want to be careful how you represent God to those around you. More than ever now, the, the culture in lots of areas of our country is going to start looking closely at those bad Christians that helped bring up Roe v. Wade. And they're going to watch our lifestyles. And they're going to see every flaw. And so we need to be mindful of the influence we might have. And it's like Pastor John said, we're going to surprise them with the love of Jesus. We're going to surprise them with that. Hypocrisy. This is a uh, word, if you have the King James Version, it's, it's dissimulation. And what it means is one who puts on a mask and feigns himself to be what he is not. Just kind of puts on a mask, acts the part of something that he's not actually going to be or is. In religion, now uh, one commentator said, that Our Lord severely rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Um, the Hebrew word rendered here, hypocrite, means the godless or profane. In other words, it's a crime to mis 
represent yourself. Now, I just want to stop here. Just maybe a few thoughts here that I've written down. They're not random thoughts. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> but uh, one question is, is when is it appropriate to correct or rebuke a fellow believer? When's, when's the appropriate time, you might ask? We're all familiar with the saying that is even applied in the world and management principles is praise in public but rebuke in private. You guys have all heard that. And that's, that's you know, gets good wisdom. But there are times when we have to speak out and we have to sometimes speak very loudly. And one of the simplest explanations for that is we need to call someone out for safety's sake. If you see your kid about to jump into a pool and they don't know how to swim, you're going to yell their name really loud. You're going to call them out. You know, you're not going to wait until it's appropriate time. If you see a child playing with a light socket or a wall socket. So for safety's sake, uh, any kind of situation. And what was going on here with Paul and Peter's actions is what he was doing was very spiritually unsafe. He was sending the wrong message to a young church and young believers. How many times have you met somebody who said, well, I used to go to church, but they burned me. I was hurt at church. They, were, they treated me terrible, whatever reason. And, and, you know, the reasons are endless. But sometimes it is true that we misrepresent God. And we misrepresent the gospel to people, to new believers, and we need to be mindful of that. Now, in this case, it was for safety's sake. Why? Well, because Peter's influence in this particular matter had become toxic. Even Barnabas, who was a champion for the Gentile believers, was carried away by the peer pressure, the peer pressure to please the men from Jerusalem. And we know that the result was ugly. Because Peter and his company, the company from Jerusalem, were now treating the Gentiles in the fellowship, the believers, the believing Christian Gentiles in the fellowship, as though they weren't true Christians. You see, that's what he's doing. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to eat with you, and, and my actions, my signal is, you're not even saved. That's what, he's, that's what he's sending the message. That's how it would often be received. And so... In the case of being rebuked, and that's a, that's a strange word, you know, that's a, that's a harsh word, you know, maybe called out. The question is for all of us, um, you know, how, how am I doing? A am, I, am I ready to receive a loving rebuke from someone I'm in fellowship with, someone I'm accountable to? And this doesn't include your spouses. <laughs> uh, that's, that happens all the time. We know that. But in any event, those, those, this is not a marriage course. We'll do that some other time. But my answer would be, probably not. I'm probably not ready to receive a rebuke from somebody in the fellowship. And neither are you. Because it's uncomfortable. Unless I'm walking in humility and I recognize the good that can come out of it. You see, just being called out, now this is in a public sense, most of the time, Matthew 18, is you go to your brother, it's a private affair. But it can be a good thing. To have somebody who loves you enough to tell you the truth about the way you're behaving when it comes to biblical truth. Not legalism, not you know, every nitpicky thing, not sniffing out sin. But when it comes to biblical stuff, and especially in this case where Peter was doing harm to the gospel message. 
Now, another thing is, think about how, and this is David Guzik brought this up, and I thank him for that, how do we misuse the term hypocrite? We misuse the term hypocrite. Think about it this way. When you and I fail to recognize that falling short of high moral standards is something that we should genuinely aim for, okay? All of us, we should aim for high moral standards as Christians. It's not hypocritical when we're not perfect at that. Because that's what somebody will say, oh, you, you talk about high moral standards, but look at you. Because it's something we all struggle with. What Peter was doing is, you know, defining hypocrite, on the contrary to what I just said, the fact that we do aim for a high moral standard, we do aim to live righteous lives before God and before one another, but we struggle with it and we fall short of it. We just need to be honest about that. But on the contrary, you and I are hypocrites when we act as though we never fail. When we act like we never make a mistake and we never, uh, do, never fail and we do it especially in order to look good in front of others. That's what hypocrisy, hypocrisy is. That's what a hypocrite is. I hope I didn't confuse you with that. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He, he, he says this to all of us. He says, before we criticize Peter, because Peter, you know, he's always getting beat up anyway, right? Before we criticize Peter, perhaps we better examine our own lives to see how many familiar Bible doctrines we are actually obeying. You see, judgment starts in the heart, in the house of the Lord, but it starts right here in the heart. He says, as you examine church history, you will see that even with a complete Bible, believers through the years have been slow to believe and practice the truths of the Christian faith. We're being sanctified. This is a process as we walk through, as we grow in the Lord, he starts to loosen our load. He takes away our burdens and our pain and our sin, and he starts to clean us up, and it takes an entire lifetime until we're in his presence with glorified bodies an entire lifetime. <coughs> Next, we're in verses 14 through 16. We see defending the truth of the gospel. And, well, he says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. In other words, they weren't they weren't shooting straight about the gospel. They were, they were kind of given a crooked gospel by their actions. And you say, well, what is the truth of the gospel? And, and very basically, in the most basic sense is, it's answering the question, how is a man or woman or person made right with God? The answer to that tells the truth of the gospel. And that's through Jesus Christ and him crucified and you accepting his death, his atonement on the cross in place of where you would go. You know, it's like you're in a courtroom and you're standing trial. And if you're standing in before in God's judgment court at the end of eternity or the beginning of the end, you will, uh, you will have to give account for your sins. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't 
learned the truth of the gospel and accepted the work that he did on the cross at Calvary and received the price that he paid on your behalf, if you haven't received that free gift, that offering, then you're going to stand in judgment of God. So how is a man right, made right with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you start to add things, you come in with false teachers, it gets muddy, it gets legalistic, it gets confusing, it creates trouble, it creates division, and it can become a very, problem, very big problem in a church. And so Paul, he, he goes, he's like, he's not going to let this matter go unchallenged. So he says to Peter, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, then why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, you're not living under those rules anymore, so why are you trying to make Gentiles become Jewish Christians and obey the law of Moses, especially the Levitical laws? These were, uh, this, this is a tendency, uh, I apologize, but they were called Judaizers. So if your name is Judy, I apologize. But Judaizers, this was people that were trying to convert people into a certain thing. You know, it, it would be like saying, um, you, you don't get to be a Christian in our society unless you're also a homeschooler. <laughs> you got to be a homeschooler to be a real Christian. Um, and you got to eat, you know, non-GMO food to be a real Christian. Otherwise, you know, you're missing out on the true gospel. I mean, I, honestly, I'm not saying we do it here. There are good reasons to be healthy, and there are a, a number of reasons why we homeschool our kids. But what I'm saying is you don't add that to the gospel. You never add that to the gospel. And sometimes we come off that way. People think, well, if I'm going to join a church or be a Christian, I've got to buy my food at a different place now. Uh, I gotta, you know, I gotta start homeschooling my kids. That's not, not required, okay? But it's very important that you do so. Because a lot of folks do. We homeschooled our kids. Anyway, uh, rabbit trail. Sorry. Um, he says in verse fifteen, "We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles." What is he talking about here? Well, Jews by nature simply means Jews by birth. They were born Jews, and if they were born Jews, they would practice those things, especially in those days. This is a derogatory term that Paul is using. This is the way, uh, it's sort of a snapshot of the way the culture was at that time. Uh, the prevailing attitude um, was that Jewish Christians, a sinner, this was a prevailing attitude that Paul was trying to remove. A sinner was someone who doesn't keep the Mosaic law. So, since the Gentiles were not given the law, that's biblical, right? They were not given the law. Um, well, they're sinners by default. Nothing you can do about it, right? And so that was a mindset that was going on. He says, we're not sinners of the Gentiles. So um, he, he's really giving them back. He's feeding them back the medicine that they've been trying to feed themselves. And then he goes on to verse 16. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, how is a man made right with God? By faith in Jesus Christ justified or just as if I'd never sinned. And you know, that's, that's a simplified way. But it's so complete. It is so thorough when you really study what this word justified means. First of all, it's a judicial act by God by which he pardons all the sins of those who believe in Christ. All your past, present, and future sins have been pardoned. You will not stand in judgment for them.
and he accounts it or he accepts and treats them as being righteous under the law. It's, it's as though you even kept the law. You're so washed and clean by Jesus' blood. As though you had conformed to all of its demands is how God looks at it. In addition to the pardon of sin, justification declares that all the claims of the law are satisfied in respect of the justified. We know that the works of the law is the Mosaic law, it's the moral, the Ten Commandments, it's the ceremonial and the dietary. And mainly it's the moral law that we're talking about now when you're cleansed. That's, that's the main thing. By faith in Jesus Christ, the only way to be found right with God on Judgment Day, because your name will be found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What does that mean? Let's look real quickly at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Because this is what it ends up being for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You stand in a courtroom. Here it is. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, and from those from whose the face of the earth and heaven fled away. So everything's cleared out of the way for this courtroom to take place. All of the, you know, everything, all of the heavens. And there was found no place for them, these things that he'd cleared out. And verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. If you stand before God on judgment day, everything you've ever done in your life is now revealed before God. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the seriousness of what things are going to end up like for those who are separated from Jesus. Now back to our text, he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You know, us Jews, we, we've, we've given up on the idea that we can keep the law and make ourselves righteous before God. But yet at the same time, you're trying to put the law back on people. It doesn't make sense. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The, the law, by the way, the law, you know, gets beat up. You know, we don't need the law. You don't need the Ten Commandments. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, especially the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we have them right there in the hallway, is to show us our need for a Savior. It's to bring conviction. It plays a powerful role in the mind and the hearts of every single one of us who's come to know the Lord because your conscience couldn't deal with the fact that you were not right before God when you read those and you come to understand those. So the law is not bad, but the law... It's not the thing that saves you. So trying to keep the law can't do it. That's why by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. A very important memory verse to keep in your heart. A very important. In summary, justification is not simply forgiveness. A person can be forgiven and then go out and sin again. You, you, you know, we're all guilty of that. 
So it's not simply forgiveness. Justification by faith means that you can never be held guilty before God. It is also different from being pardoned because a pardoned criminal still has a record. But God throws that record away. It says here, being justified by faith means that your sins are remembered no more and not put on record. You see, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, um, David writes this. He goes, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Did Paul have similar struggles? You know, here he is calling out Peter. But did Paul have similar struggles? Yes, he did. Uh, David Guzik writes this. He says, we might be surprised that Peter compromised even though he knew better. But we are only surprised if we don't believe what God says about the weakness and corruption of our flesh. Paul himself knew this struggle and he described it in Romans 7.18. He says, For I know what is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Our passage today shows us that no religious observance of God's commands should give anyone a sense of superior status because a person standing in God's sight depends on Christ and faith in Him and not in anything that a person has done. So, so far, Paul has been very careful. Notice we said this wasn't a personal attack on Paul, by Paul on Peter. He's, he's going back talking about the unity of believers and the fact that we need to be justified by, justified by faith alone. And he stands by the truth of the gospel. Finally, we're going to look, uh, verses 17 through 21, the danger of legalism. The danger of legalism. He says in verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found to be sinners or to be discovered, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? You know, Paul seems to be quoting uh, an argument being made by his opposition, or at least he's anticipating that. You know, if you put your faith in Christ, but you're also found to be a sinner, didn't, didn't Christ then make you a sinner? And that's, you know, it's a circular argument that doesn't make sense. And he answers, he says, certainly not. Or God forbid, no, that's not what we're trying to say. That's a terrible argument. It doesn't work. It doesn't fly. His opponents might be saying that Paul's gospel message is now saying that the Jewish law is no longer a requirement. So Jesus is actually encouraging sin by removing the law observances. It's a preposterous claim. We know Matthew 15, 11, Jesus said it himself. He said not, when he talks about defiling a person, he says not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth. This is what defiles a man. So Christ does not make you, uh, he is not. Jesus Christ, that's blasphemy. Jesus Christ is not a minister of sin against from the arguments that are saying and when you, when you, if you encounter an atheist, a hardcore atheist or an agnostic, they say some very terrible things about, about God. They say some very terrible things. And you and I need to know the word, you know, to kind of defend. We need to be ready to receive some 
very blasphemous things. You see it all the time online. But if you deal with it face to face, it's a whole other animal. He says in verse 18, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now Paul has spent, since he's come to the faith, and for the last four, 13 years, you know, he's been, uh, he got saved, and he's been in ministry, and you know, he's, he's working to destroy that old belief. And he's like, if I'm going to rebuild that, I'm making myself a transgressor. I'm making myself a, a lawbreaker. Warren Wiersbe says this, by going back into legalism, you're building up what you tore down. This means that you sin by tearing it down again or by tearing it down to begin with. And sometimes we can tend to want to do that in our faith, in our walk with the Lord. We can start going into this sort of legalistic way. And so we start to build up these things that we originally were freed from. We were taken, the bondage was taken out. And so if you're going to build it up again, well, you were sinning from the very beginning, is what the argument is. In verse 19, for I, for through the law, or excuse me, for I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Paul explains that in order to get out from under the curse of trying and failing over and over again, to live a life of religious perfection, a person needs to die to the law. To stop trying to meet all of its requirements is what it means. To die to the law, the law of Moses. It is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion. This is John Calvin's words. To die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it. No confidence in it. And it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. Now, you know, we could go to the other side about uh, license, and, and it's not like, that's not today's message, but there's a balance. Of course, we, we, we seek to keep the moral law. We all seek to keep the Ten Commandments by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that everything it says in there is true. But we're not under the yoke of bondage and slavery when we, when we fall short. Because we've been free, we're freed in Christ. He says, finally, that I might... I died to the law that I might live to God. See, Jesus established a new covenant, the law of grace. It's a new and a better law. And we celebrate that every time we have communion. And then the famous verse, some of you may have this as a memory verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a remarkable, what a, you know, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for using Paul in such a powerful way to speak so thoroughly to our hearts that need to be spoken to as only you can. I have been crucified with Christ. How is that? When a person puts their faith in Jesus, Christ takes that faith and counts as though you had died with Christ. This gives you now a new identity through Christ's death. You've died with Christ. You have a new identity. And your sin is already punished by Jesus' death. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This has been called the great exchange. Having died to a life of independence and self-reliance, because that's what we tend to do apart from Christ, 
We're going to have a, you know, again, uh, today is a really great day for this teaching, by the way. I did not plan it this way. But we're going to have a baptism today to illustrate that truth. We're going to have a baptism. What an amazing thing. Romans 6, 3 through 6. This is where we're, this is sort of us get, getting ready for baptism today. To understand how we died. It says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Jesus, or Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Amen. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Where, where he goes, we go. Where he goes, we go. He died, he came up, he rose from dead, he was resurrected, he sits at the right hand of the Father. We will be resurrected one day. Our bodies will be put back together by God supernaturally and will be in his presence for all eternity. In fact, he's coming for us. He's coming, he's coming to get us. If we're alive, when the rapture happens, he's coming for his church. He's coming for his church. But no matter what, whether our bones you know, decay away in the grave or whether we die, you know, uh, are here for the rapture, um, no matter what, he's going to put it all back together. He's going to pull it together and we're going to be resurrected with him. He says, And in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This new life in Christ means that you and I are called to allow Christ to be in charge of our lives and live through our bodies. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road in our faith oftentimes, isn't it? Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to them all who were there, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Notice daily. Daily, every day. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will, for my sake will save it. He says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Describing the personal love that Jesus has for each of his followers. The personal love. It's more than just a general sense. That's, yes, he died for the entire world. But you, you and I who know Jesus, it's a personal thing. It's relationship, not a religion. John 15, 4 and 5. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We are saved by faith in Christ. He died for us. We live by faith in Christ. He lives in us. And we are so identified with Christ by the Spirit that we died with him, writes Warren Wiersbe. And again, that's what our baptism ceremony is going to illustrate. Finally, verse 21, it says, I do not set aside the grace, the grace of God, for if by righteousness comes through the law, for, excuse me, for if by righteousness comes through the law. In other words, he's saying, look, uh, if it comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Again, a major insult to the work of the cross. And he says, it's so important 
if I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law. In other words, if I decide that I'm going to take all the work that was done on the cross and set it aside, and I'm going to pick up legalistic uh, Jewish traditions and, and, and the law of, of Moses, then Christ died in vain. Christ died in vain. Unfairly. Because if you believe you can be righteous before God by keeping the law, you don't need Jesus. But we know that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man can see the Father unless he comes through me. One writer highlights the importance of this truth because in Jesus' prayer, when he was in, remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was praying to the Father, and he asked the Father if there could be any other way to accomplish what stood before him at the cross. He came before the Lord or for the Father. And he asked him to be spared of the cross. But Jesus was not spared of the cross because there is no other way to accomplish what needed to be done. How did Peter respond to all this? We know that Peter you know, didn't have a chance to respond to this public rebuke. But we also know that by the time you get to Acts 15, and we're going to talk about that in a future time, uh, that they were all together once again. Peter received the rebuke because he knew the good that it was. And so they were all come. They didn't, you know, it wasn't a church split, <laughs> okay? They stayed together. The apostles stayed together. And he actually defended at the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. He defended the right for the Gentiles not to have to put, be put under the yoke of the law. So he was convinced. But really, we, we need to answer a question, one last question. Have I, have you been saved by the grace of God? The only gospel that saves is the gospel of the grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Have you received the grace of God? Have you been saved by the grace of God? Have you said, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength to do it. Any other gospel is a false gospel and it's under a curse. Paul said it earlier in 1 Galatians. Am I trusting in myself for salvation? Am I trusting my morality, my good works, even my religion? If I put my eggs in that basket for my eternal salvation, and if I am, then I'm not a Christian. For a true Christian is one who has trusted in Christ alone. I would ask you to think about that. Think about it through the day. I don't, I don't, we don't do altar calls here. Uh, I believe that people need to understand the full importance of coming to Christ. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will convict a person. If somebody wants to make a public profession of faith, we have plenty of room for that. But if you haven't given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I challenge you to get with God, to get in his word, and to submit your life to him. And he will save you. Realize that you can't do it on your own. Repent of your sin. Come to know him. And you will know. We're getting ready to have our baptism service in about
uh, 10 minutes. We'll, if whoever, whoever's going to stay behind for our baptism, we invite you all to come down the hallway. But uh, before we do that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your gospel, Lord. I thank you that there's only one way, that you made a way through Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that it's, it sits firmly in our hearts, Lord, for those of us who have trusted you, that we, we will not be moved. We can put our full trust and confidence in you, Lord Jesus, in you alone. All the work that you did on the cross on our behalf was sufficient for our salvation. And so, Lord, as we get ready to celebrate and to demonstrate that through this baptism service, Lord, I ask that you would go, that you would continue to move by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of minds of everyone here and everyone in attendance, and especially those who have decided to make a public affirmation of their faith in you through baptism. So would you go before us, Lord? We thank you that you've met us here. We thank you that you have, Lord. We brought you here with us, but then you are among us, and everything comes together in your, in your beautiful way, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for that. So go before us now as we seek to live out our faith each and every day to take up our cross, to die to ourself, and to bring glory to you. Go before us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.